The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let's turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, at verse 25. Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 28. Continuing along in our study of this great epistle of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 4, at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let us pray. Father, may you give light to our eyes and may you give strength to our character as we seek to put into practice what your word calls us to do and to be as we are new creations in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. It's very fitting this evening as we have observed these wonderful professions of faith that we consider this topic of the Christian's new life. Two weeks ago, Pastor De Bruin gave us a wonderful exposition of the verses leading up to our text in verses 17 to 24. We saw that in contrast to how pagans or unbelievers live with minds that are darkened and alienated from God, Christians have been given a new life in Christ. Christians have been taught the truth that is in Jesus Christians have been given renewed minds in Jesus Christ their Lord, and we are called to live out the implications of our old self being put to death and our new self created after the likeness of God. What a tremendous description those verses are about what God has done in the believer's life the new life He's given us in Christ. Think of the example of a house. Many of you own homes. Some of you at one time or another have bought a fixer-upper. Now, we all know that fixer-uppers are for the young and for the strong and for the motivated and energetic. But imagine that you bought a house that was once a fixer-upper but is not one anymore because it's been remodeled. It's been renewed. And we can use that analogy, that example of conversion and regeneration. But even if you bought a fixed-up fixer-upper, we know that anyone who owns a home knows that there's still a lot of work to be done. A pipe 
on the second floor might leak like our neighbors just did the other day and leak down and got all the first floor and the basement all wet too and have to do a lot of repair. Or there's a chance that the wind might blow some shingles off the house and you've got to get up on the roof and put them back on. Or there's any kind of thing that can go wrong and any homeowner knows there's always work to be done. So even with a fixed up house, a renewed house, there's still room for growth. There's still work to be done. And that's the Christian's new life. I saw in the newspaper this morning that there were these cityscape lofts um, that it took nine months to renovate this old, dilapidated warehouse. You probably saw it on a front page of one of the inner pages of the newspaper. And now it's been turned into one-bedroom apartments that are very upscale and that start at fourteen forty a month for a one-bedroom apartment. And that's a lot of money. But obviously, now it's renewed. It's all remodeled. It's all beautiful. And fundamentally, Christians have been renewed in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul has been saying. Look at verse 23 and 24, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then comes the beginning of our text, verse 25, therefore, and now begins a long section of the Apostle Paul calling Christians to put off sin and to put on Christ-like character. Therefore, in light of what's happened, now live that way. Live out your new life that you have in Christ. I just think it's so exciting that we consider that subject this evening. As we've seen our friends profess faith in Christ, and we see the Lord growing them, and as we know that He is likewise growing all of us as we pursue faith in Jesus Christ and seek to trust in Him and obey Him day by day. This important section calls us to work out in practice what God has already worked out in us in Christ. We are called to live out our new life in Christ. Let us briefly explore that. First of all, let us see, living a new life in Christ is the calling of every Christian. Living out this new life in Christ is the calling of every Christian. Notice that there's really been a continuation from chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Every Christian has been called by Jesus Christ. We've been saved. We've been given new life. And now we're to walk in a manner worthy of that. And then Paul picks up that calling theme again in verse 17, which we saw two weeks ago. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And so he's again picking up this theme of how are they going to walk? How are they going to live? And now he begins to spell it out in very practical details in verse 25. Therefore, and he begins to talk about putting away falsehood and speaking the truth. But let us just stop and think for a minute about this first point. Living a new life in Christ is the calling of every 
Christian. It's our comprehensive calling. It's a calling that involves both our attitudes and our behaviors. We don't want to miss the forest because of the trees, we might say. We are called to work out this new life. This passage is going to go on and on about very specific things that are called for in our lives, things that we have to turn away from and ways that we have to be more like Christ. It's very, a, a very powerful section. It's filled with this language of changed lives, both root and fruit, both heart and actions, both thoughts and words and deeds. And we see that we're to be made new, verse 23, in the spirit of our minds. It's interesting here, as we look in the weeks to come at this list of put-offs and put-ons, that we'll notice that the apostle easily moves back and forth between outward behaviors and inner attitudes, between thoughts and words and deeds. It's very comprehensive. It's not simplistic. It's not merely a matter of externals, but externals are important. It's not merely a matter of inner mystical thoughts or feelings. No, it's got to be lived out in life. There's this wonderful biblical balance. Our comprehensive calling is to live out in every aspect of life, in every part of our being, this whole new man in Christ, this new person in Christ that we've been recreated to be. It involves things like falsehood and anger and bitterness and malice, getting rid of things like that. It involves, and we're going to see the way we talk to others, that we're always seeking to build up others with our speech. It involves things like not stealing. It involves honest work. It, it will talk about being kind to others, tenderhearted, forgiving, as God in Christ forgave you. And it will involve many more things as well. So it's not a small thing. This new life in Christ that we're called to live out is a comprehensive lifestyle It's a whole new pathway. That's why the Bible calls it a walk almost. It's the way you walk. It's the way you live. God is doing something in your life. What if you were in the market for a house? And you saw in the newspaper a house that you thought you might like, and maybe you tried to look at it online, but you didn't see any photos of it online, and you say, well, I'll get my realtor to take me there. And you go up to the house, and it looks pretty nice. The yard looks pretty good and looks like painted nicely and with uh, a good appearance. And what if the realtor opened the little lockbox and opened the door and it looked like a haunted house inside? You know, you used to see these cobwebs and ceiling falling down and everything. Well, you wouldn't even want to step through the door. Something was radically wrong. What a disaster. And that's how it's not supposed to be for the Christian. The Christian is supposed to not only be changed on the outside, but be changed on the inside as well. This new life involves this pathway of continuing to forsake sin and hate sin and turn away from sin, both in its overarching sense, but in its very specific senses too. The very particular details of our daily lives. And it involves daily trusting Jesus Christ. 
trusting him for power, trusting him for the grace to live out his life in us. God is preparing us as a bride for Jesus Christ, both corporately and individually. And we must understand this. We must realize the comprehensive way, the overarching way that God intends to work in our lives. And so this new life is the comprehensive calling of each one of us. But we also see that living a new life in Christ must be carried out by repeated, specific acts of putting off, putting on. Living a new life involves putting off and putting on in repeated, specific, daily acts. We're going to see many of these as we go in weeks to come. But notice that what we're finding here is something we've already talked about in the book of Ephesians. It's what we would call the imperative based on the indicative. Or or in other words, be who you already are. The commands come. Put off falsehood. Don't steal. But the basis of that is because we are new creations in Christ. But we can't just rest on the fact that we're new creations in Christ and think that there's nothing to be done. We have to put off and put on daily. That's part of the Christian's daily warfare. Be who you are. Or to use other words, we're to reckon ourselves dead with Christ and alive with Christ in a daily way. We're to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. It's an accounting term. We're to count ourselves to be dead and act on that. Often we don't feel like our sin is dead. Often we feel like our sin is very much alive, and and we know that there is the power of remaining sin that we still need to put to death in our lives. I've always liked the illustration of when World War II was going on and certain islands in the Pacific were being taken over by the Allies, and they'd make a beachhead, and they'd land, and they'd finally take the command center in the island, and they'd raise the American flag and declare that the island was taken, and yet there was still a big mopping up operation to do. Yes, the island was taken in one sense, but it needed to be mopped up, and we know that there were still enemy soldiers, some of them camping out in those islands for years afterwards, still hiding away in the jungles. What an illustration of the warfare of the Christian every day by repeated acts of putting off, putting on these things that we're called to do. Notice that we are to put off sinful actions, but as we look at these, we also realize we're to confess sinful motivations and desires that lay behind these things. It kind of reminds me of, of the trench warfare in World War One. You know, that was a horrible thing, this warfare that went back and forth, and you see movies, and you hear descriptions and read books about this, and you see what devastating warfare that was, that people in the trench would have to get up and attack, and and they'd be shot down, and they'd come back, and it was slow going. I think it's helpful for us to remember that the Christian's warfare is like trench warfare sometimes. Sometimes you're only just fighting for an inch in one day, and then you are set back a half an inch, or you get a half a mile, and you're back a quarter of a mile. The three put-off and put-ons that we see in our text 
tonight are putting off falsehood and put on truth. That's the first. And then putting off sinful anger, instead putting on reconciliation. And the third is putting off stealing and putting on honest work and generous giving. I want us to just briefly think of those three, and we'll look at more in weeks to come. The first is in verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. There's a wonderful section in the larger catechism, questions 144 and 145, on what is the meaning of the ninth commandment about not bearing false testimony. If you ever want to read a rich, detailed description of that, I'll just give you part of it here. Just to give you an idea, it says that what does it mean not to do that, not to be false, not to lie? It says, from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth. Pretty comprehensive way of saying that. It also goes on to say it's a charitable esteem of our neighbors. It's discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers. It means the keeping of lawful promises. It means studying and practicing whatever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. And that's just a small part of what it says. But you see how extensive this calling to put off falsehood and to speak the truth is in each of our lives. We live in a world where we, we, we know there's always spin going on. Everybody in the media and politics is always spinning the truth. That's a very nice word, isn't it, to spin the truth. It just sounds so okay to spin the truth, but really it means to kind of twist the truth. And we see that in our society, the whole idea of being truthful is not upheld very much. So Christians are called to be different in the way they handle the truth. They're called to put away all falsehood. That means to get rid of every bit of dishonesty and deception. Certainly, we can all stop and think about ways that we might shade the truth or spin the truth a little bit to make ourselves look good. The Bible says that's wrong. Of course, we would say, well, no, we're not to lie. We know that. But we can sin and avoid the truth in more subtle ways. One way to test yourself is just think, what are the ways that I might tend to exaggerate? What are the situations that I might not say things in a completely honest way? That's the way we need to judge ourselves and guard against this sin. But instead, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And then note the motivation. Paul's thinking here about Christians with Christians, and he says, for we are members one of another. How would you be false with someone that you're a member of, that you're part of? See how rich the Bible is with motivations. The second put off is to put off sinful anger in verses 26 and 27. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, most of you know this verse very well, and we've preached on this before. 
But let's just remind ourselves that this is, this is a battlefield. This is a trench, part of the trench warfare Christians are called to engage in. Anger in our society, again, is seen a lot as okay. But the Bible is very clear that anger is easily sinful. Here in verse 26, we see that it's possible to be angry and not to sin because it says, be angry and do not sin. We had a preacher on a Lenten service the other year the other year here that said that uh, he thought that his time frame for uh, when his anger would go from righteous indignation to sinful anger was no longer than two minutes. I remember him saying that. He's a friend of mine. And I thought, well, that's a good good judgment to think that, look, how easy it is for righteous indignation to become sinful anger. It happens very fast. But the point of this verse is, don't let the sun go down in your anger. In other words, keep short accounts when it comes to anger. Don't enter into your anger and meditate on whatever it is that got you angry and think about it and let it just be dredged up over and over again. No, be done with your anger. Exercise self-control. Stop that initial impulse to lash out. But of course, anger is only symptomatic of wrong desires wrong hearts. So another thing to do in order to be angry and do not sin is to have self-awareness about what is it that's causing me to become angry? What, is, what desire has it become a demand in my heart that, that I want this thing so much that I'm willing to become angry at those around me that I don't get it? Or what is it that tends to rule me? What fear is it that tends to rule me? And think about the circumstances in your life that you tend to get angry, whether it's driving on the, on the roads or whether it's going into a store or whether it's with your children or whatever it is. We all know the things that tend to push our buttons. And start to become self-aware. Yes, control that initial impulse to react, but then become self-aware. What is it that's causing me to get angry? And learn to repent of those things. But then the third put off here is to put off stealing. In verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Notice again the biblical wisdom, the biblical balance here, that not only does the Apostle Paul say, do not steal, he says, do not steal, but work hard. But notice he doesn't even stop there. He says, do not steal, but work hard so that you may have something to share with those in need. The world might say at times, do not steal. But then it might say, do not steal and work hard so you can amass all these things for yourself. And so you, you can have a good life and you don't have to worry about anyone else. The Bible doesn't let us think that way. The Bible is balanced and wise, and God is calling us to be Christ-like to others around us. And so it says that you might have something to share with anyone in need. You know, the people in Ephesus were not as wealthy as we are, but they couldn't say, well, I still don't have enough. I can't help anyone else yet. No, they were being called by the apostle to be generous, to be giving, And certainly, that applies to you and to me. So we're to put off 
various things here, and we're to put on Christ-like behavior. And let me close with this last point as we look at this. Living a new life in Christ is always linked to Christ-centeredness. Living a new life in Christ is always linked to Christ-centeredness. As we move through these put-offs and put-on, it's easy to get lost in them and to not back up and think about what Pastor De Bruin preached on two weeks ago, that we have learned Jesus Christ. We have been made new in Christ. Ephesians is full of motivation that is a Christ-centered motivation. We have the goal, we're told, of being recreated in the likeness of God, in the image of Christ our Lord. We'll soon see in verse 30 that we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit with whom we've been sealed for the day of redemption. We're reminded that God himself is our example. We're to forgive others as as God in Christ has forgiven us. And we could summarize these motivations in this way. We are to live before God, dependent on God's grace, being devoted to God. We are to live before God, dependent on God's grace, being devoted in love to God. In other words, what we're saying is we don't want a house that just looks good on the outside. We want a house that looks good on the inside. And how does that renewal take place? Well, if we go back to the the building imagery again and the house imagery again, most of us know how good we feel when a master craftsman comes over to our house to fix something that's gone wrong. I'm not going to mention any names, but there are some individuals in this church who are people that you want on your side if something goes wrong. Let me tell you that. And when one of them has to come to my house, I just walk around behind them saying, yes, yes, that's good, yes, yes. In other words, I'm trusting this individual because this individual knows 10 times as much as I do about how to even put in a doorknob, you know. So when that person comes to my house, that's where my trust is. If he says, you have to take this out and you have to put this in, I say, you do it, you know. Spare the cost. Because the master builder, the master craftsman is someone that we want at work on our new house. And I hope that you see the analogy that because Jesus Christ has saved us and redeemed us, he has not just set us off and said, now work on renewing yourself in the image of God. No, he is the master builder, the master craftsman that is at work with us as we trust in him, as we live before him, as we are devoted in love to him, as we walk with him day by day. He is the one at work. We cooperate with him, but he is doing it to the praise of his glorious grace, the new life he is building for his glory. To him be all the praise. Amen. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ has so loved us, that Jesus Christ has so died for us, that he lived for us, that he rose for us, that he reigns for us. Thank you for what you are doing. Help us this week. Help us tomorrow to put to death these sins that so easily beset us and to put on the virtues of Jesus Christ that he might be glorified, that others might see, and that others might know something of his grace to us. We pray in his name. Amen.